we talk about this magnetic bond or this stickiness between association and member school that we try to accomplish, so much of that's relationship. The content is a huge part of it, but equally huge is fellowship. And equally huge is just the ability to come together with other leaders in Episcopal schools and just check in and hear how they're doing and what they're wrestling with and support and encourage each other. That's a really big part of what makes NAES special. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with the Reverend Dr. David Madison, Executive Director of the National Association of Episcopal Schools, or NAES. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be with you. Hey, David, tell us about NAES. Sure. So the National Association of Episcopal Schools serves the between 700 and 800 Episcopal schools in the country. Our mission is to serve those who serve Episcopal schools, and we do that in a variety of ways. We offer membership services in the form of principles of good practice, conferences, workshops, webinars, a robust document library of resources and different toolkits, focusing on Episcopal identity and what it means to be a great Episcopal school. Now, David, your members are really interesting because they're independent schools. And maybe you can define for us what an independent school is and how are you independent and Episcopal at the same time? Yeah, that's a really good question because it can be a little bit tricky. So we're Episcopal schools in the sense that all of our schools have a connection with an Episcopal organization. So that can be, for example, a parish or a diocese or a cathedral, but they also can be Episcopal in the sense of their Episcopal identity. And sometimes that formal relationship with the Episcopal institution isn't quite as clear as if you're a parish day school where you're sharing a campus. The best way to describe it is there's different types of Episcopal schools across the country. So our parish day schools are schools that tend to um, share a campus or share a ministry with one of our Episcopal parishes. That's one expression. Another expression would be a more independent Episcopal school, which may or may not have a formal relationship, but it's recognized by the diocese, for example. But all of our schools are considered independent in this sense, in that they are independent in their academic inquiry. Ah. There is not a set curriculum, for example, that all of our schools follow. Equally important, not all of our families are from our tradition. About 85% of the families that attend Episcopal schools are not from our denomination. 
And so in that sense, they have deep Episcopal identity, but are also independent in how they function. It can be a little confusing, honestly, for our new heads of school that come into this work. We spend a lot of time talking about the exact question you pose. What does it mean to be an Episcopal school, but what does it also mean to be functionally independent? And it can be a a complicated question. You know, what's interesting is here in the Northern Virginia area, and certainly across the country as I speak with my friends, when an Episcopal school enters the conversation, almost universally, there is a feeling that these are academically rigorous, excellent schools. So somehow, these Episcopal schools have just kind of crafted an amazing reputation for being excellent schools. So how are you doing that? Well, that's deep in our DNA. I mean, if you look at the schools we have created all the way back to the oldest school that is still in operation, Trinity in New York, from the start, academic excellence has been an important part of our approach. And that's in the ethos of being an Episcopal church as well, or an Anglican church. We really recognize that the sources of theology, for example, it's scripture, it's tradition, and it's reason. Mm. So deep, deep in how we approach the world is this idea that reason, intellect, that's a God-given gift that we are called to develop. And that's what happens in our schools. The father of Episcopal schools is someone named William Augustus Muhlenberg. And he talked about wanting to make sure that we furnish the mind, but not at the expense of the heart. We're trying to do all of those things. We're trying to be an academically strong program while also turning out great young people that understand responsibility, that understand what social justice means, that truly want to make the world a better place. So that's what I love about Episcopal schools. It's hard to pigeonhole them. They are absolutely academically strong, but they are equally strong with regard to character development. They're equally strong with regard to formation, which again may look different from family to family, but families, regardless of their background, come to our schools because they don't just want the academic piece. They want everything that comes along with being part of an Episcopal community. Wow, I love it. And I can't wait to dive into the things that you're doing for this membership. But before we do that, tell us how you got to become executive director of NAS. Sure. Well, I joke in saying that God rarely works in straight lines. (laughs) And my professional career has been a series of course corrections. I started actually professionally as an attorney. Oh. And practiced law here in Fort Worth. And during my time in law school, I was discerning a call to the priesthood. And it still was not clear for me at that point. So I continued my legal studies, was admitted to the bar in Texas and practiced law for a handful of years before I really did identify a call to the priesthood and went to seminary. And then came back after graduation and ordination and was placed in a parish. And loved parish life. But what I really fell in love with at the parish is the fact that we had a school attached. Ah. And that was actually the school I graduated from several, several years ago, All Saints Episcopal School in Fort Worth. And I found myself back there now as a member of the faculty. And so finished my time at the parish and went over to the school full time and just loved it. 
and served in every possible capacity you could in the school. So I taught kindergarten religion. I taught ethics to the 12th graders. I was a middle school chaplain. I served as an upper school chaplain. I finally finished my time there as the head of the upper school and assistant headmaster. And then after a decade of service at All Saints, I moved into association work. And so my first association was the Southwestern Association of Episcopal Schools, which is one of the regional accreditors that serves six states in the Southwest. And that was my first association that I served as executive director and loved that. But that was primarily an accreditor. And what I really longed for was not just the accreditation work, which I enjoyed, but a deeper work in Episcopal identity. And when you do accreditation work, Episcopal identity is certainly a part of that, but there's a lot of other things that are a part of accreditation as well, which I enjoyed. But when the NAES executive director position appeared and I was approached to explore that, what really tugged at my heartstrings was the ability to dive into Episcopal identity and really develop resources and help our schools across the country double down on what it means to be an Episcopal school, not just a great independent school, but a great Episcopal school. And that's at the core of what NAES does. So I'm having a blast and really doing what I love. Boy, that's really interesting because there are many other associations that really serve independent schools like NAIS, the Atlas, NBOA. We've talked about those organizations. Right. But what you're doing is serving the Episcopal schools and helping them to become high-performing, academically rigorous, successful schools with an Episcopal identity. That's right. And yeah, you just named a handful of amazing awesome associations in the independent school world space. And there's 25 more that we could name that are doing that. But no one's doing what we're doing, which is really asking the question, what are the resources that you need to fully understand the Episcopal identity of your school? And how is that informing your decision-making at the board level? How is that informing curriculum decisions, pedagogy, hiring decisions, student life, diversity, equity, and inclusion, belonging, chapel, formation, all of those things. Wow. We're here to ask, okay, how does the Episcopal lens inform those things? Everything. Exactly. Wow. Ann Mello used to always mention, she was the previous associate director, wonderful, wonderful educator, and is now in the consulting world. And always talked about, you know, Episcopal identity isn't one of the dishes on the buffet. It's the marinade. Ah. It's what holds everything together and what makes your school unique. Anyone can come up with a wonderful academic program. Anyone can develop wonderful DEIJ resources or belonging resources. But what makes it unique for our schools is that we do that because of our Episcopal identity. We do that because we recognize that every child is a loved child of God. And because of that, we're going to treat each other in a certain way. And our programs are going to reflect that as well. So David, you've got an incredibly diverse membership. You've got K-12 schools in urban environments. You've got pre-K programs. You've got K-8 in rural communities. As an association, how do you serve this really diverse membership? Because I think this is really key to your success and why you're thriving. 
That's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. I think the first part of the recipe for success is recognizing what you just recognized, which is one size won't fit all. Ah. And so if I look at our membership, we have everything from standalone preschools with 65 kids all the way to some of the largest independent schools in the country to, as you mentioned, rural schools, to urban schools, to our Urban Schools Alliance, which is a collection of tuition-free schools Ah. and everything in between. And so the interesting thing is that huge, diverse population of schools all share one thing, and that's their Episcopal identity. The expressions are different, but they all are trying to be the best possible Episcopal school they can be. So it's an extremely diverse population, but even so, we have this deep, deep connection, whether you are a pre-K through 12th grade program with 2,000 kids or a standalone early childhood program with 50 kids. We're all trying to do the same thing, which is live the values of Episcopal identity, striving for justice and peace and respecting the dignity of every human being. So that's the commonality. Where it gets interesting is how do we develop programming for that wide variety of schools? Yes. And at the core, it's making sure that we're responsive and we're trying to always be intentional about listening to what our schools need. So those tuition-free urban school alliance members need one thing for their programming. My early childhood programs need something different. So how can we be everything to all people? Because that can also be a recipe for a disaster. So we just try to be very intentional about focusing on Episcopal identity, coming up with programming for all of those different constituencies that make sense and is accessible to all those different constituencies. And then we just try to always make sure that we build community. So Episcopal schools like to get together. That was one of the biggest challenges with COVID because we couldn't get together. Right. So now we have virtual gatherings, but we also are back to having our biennial in-person conference, which is a combination of world-class professional development and family reunion. There's a little bit of both. Well, so let me ask you about that. So this is this conference that you hold every two years. And you've said that this is a signature event for you, signature member benefit, as in if you attend biannual, you're a member for life. That's right. But how do you make sure that biannual serves the needs of the chaplain at the tuition-free urban school or the head of the school from the Tony suburbs of Houston, for example, that has like a $40 million endowment? Yeah. How do you serve all those audiences in one event? Well, we make sure that the plenary events are focused on those EI elements, those Episcopal identity elements. And like I said, when we can find elements of Episcopal identity, that transcends whether you're in early childhood or a pre-K through 12th grade program. That gets into our why. And so we try to make sure that at the plenary sessions, that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on what keeps us together. What are the elements of Episcopal identity that we're trying to accomplish with every student we have, regardless of the age that they serve? 
our worship is that way too. And we come together and worship at Biennial Conference. You know, it's a great reminder of the fact that we're all on the same team. We're all trying to accomplish the exact same thing, even though our expression of that may be a little bit different based on the location, based on the families that we serve. So that's one way we do that. The other way we do that is we're very intentional about workshop selections to make sure that there is a rich assortment of workshops. And at each block, each time block, there's an an offering that will address whatever context that you're in. Ah, interesting. And so we do that through tracking. We do that through just making sure that we've got a diverse workshop offering so that when you come to Biennial Conference, you get this wonderful, wonderful experience of coming together with the entire group and you're arm in arm with someone from the different part of the country serving a completely different population, but you're aligned and you're connected Ah. with this thing that's bigger than just your school. And then when we break out, that gives you the opportunity to really focus on your particular area, be it early childhood, be it chaplaincy, be it a member of the school board, whatever that is. So it's this dual experience, if that makes sense. We're trying to be very intentional about bringing us all together in what makes us unique while being equally intentional about the specific context of their school so they can get rich professional development there as well. Not everyone can attend biannual. So you've developed other programs that are maybe more local or even virtual. Yeah. And you've got a community. You also have something called office hours. And this is part of your creating relationships between people and connecting them to NAES. So talk to us about maybe the community discussion boards, and then um, maybe we can dive into office hours because I'm fascinated by the office hours. Absolutely. So the community discussion board is a way for us to be available 24-7. You know, in a perfect world, maybe there'd be a hotline you could call anytime, any day of the week, and someone's on the other line who can answer any Episcopal school question you have. Well, that's not going to happen. So what we have is the next best thing, which is an online community where members at any time of the day or night are able to post a discussion question. And then throughout the you know subsequent hours or days, depending on the topic, other members can chime in and share their thoughts as well. It's resource sharing. It's group sourcing the same type of questions that lots of our schools are focusing on and trying to figure out how did you solve this as opposed to having to reinvent the wheel. It's a really important aspect of our membership and our members love it because they can access it whenever. And they don't have to be there. If, if they happen to be there, that's online, that's great. But they get a digest of all of the discussion threads each other day or week, depending on how they have it configured. So there's no fear of missing out. Even if you can't physically be at your computer, you know you're going to get a summary of everything so no one misses anything. So it's an important way for us to build community and also share resources. Let me ask you a question about the community. So is it general or is it by role or is it by size of school or can you access all the discussions? That's a good question. And the way we have it right now is a little bit of everything. So we have a general discussion board. We have a discussion board for our heads of school. We have one for our chaplains. We have one for our early childhood directors. And there's a couple others I can't recall off the top of my head. I think we may have one for small schools. 
you know, the push me pull you there is you don't want to have an overwhelming number, right? But you want to have a diverse enough group so people feel like they can go to the right place and get there. They feel like they're home. Exactly. So we probably have eight or nine. And I don't know if we have the right list figured out. Our urban schools have a discussion board as well. We're still trying to kind of fine tune that a little bit. I'd love to have a discussion board for seminarians. I'd love to have a discussion board for diocesan staff, other important stakeholders that have unique questions that pop up. But that's how we have that. But anyone can pop up on the general board and post one. The other boards you have to subscribe based on your role. I see. Okay. Now you're doing something called office hours. So tell us about that. Love this. Office hours. We're going to launch it in the fall. This is something that grew out of the pandemic. So we had regular meetings just about every week with our heads of school during the pandemic. Because if you remember that, oh my gosh, we were all trying to figure out masks. Yes. Distancing ratios. How do we stay open? Do we stay closed? How do we stay open? We're back, but how can we sing? Can we have choir? Can we sing hymns? Can we not? Et cetera, et cetera. So we got into the habit of having pretty regular meetings. Since things have shifted somewhat, I'm almost afraid to say back to normal, but somewhat back to less pandemic mode, those gatherings are not as frequent, with one exception, our early childhood directors still gather every week. It's a great call. I try to jump on it as many times as I can, but they still gather every week just because they've identified we feel like we're alone a lot and we need ah. to just connect with our peers. And so that's an opportunity for them to come together as early childhood directors. There's been a little more of an interest in that, coming together not just for workshops or conferences with other stakeholders as well. So what we're going to do in addition to our regular webinar offerings is provide a monthly office hour check-in. And that's just a time when I'll be on the Zoom call with my associate director, Monica Gillespie, and it's just a chance to pop in. Sometimes people will pop in and just say hi and just connect. Sometimes they'll pop in. They've got a question about, hey, tell me about this event. We're thinking about sending some folks. Tell me more. Ah. Other times it's a governance question that they want to explore a little bit. And maybe there's someone on the call who says, oh, wow, you know what? I had that a couple of weeks ago. And you know, let me share with you how we approach that. So it's just an unstructured opportunity for membership to come together. Wow. Sometimes I think we'll have some content. Sometimes it will be just Again, like a mini family reunion. And what my strategy will be, I'll probably have a little five-minute piece of content ready to go in the same way that I provide a weekly meditation to our membership, either about a book I've read or you know, an article or something of interest. And then we'll just open it up. And we'll see. You know, We haven't done office hours before, but I think it will become pretty popular. I'm positive it's going to be popular. I mean, it's time to connect with you and time to connect with each other. I mean, our schools love that. That's why we talk about this magnetic bond or this stickiness between association and member school that we try to accomplish. So much of that's relationship. The content is a huge part of it, but equally huge is fellowship. And equally huge is just the ability to come together with other leaders in Episcopal schools and just check in and hear how they're doing and what they're wrestling with and support and encourage each other. That's a really big part of what makes NAES special. Speaking of issues that the schools are wrestling with, you also talked about governance. 
NAES has a consulting practice. We do. And I've not seen this with many of my clients where I guess the schools can literally hire you or Monica or other staff members to help them with anything. Yeah. How does that work? And it grew out of necessity in a lot of ways, just because particularly around Episcopal identity and governance, how we do governance, partially because of how that whole question about, are you Episcopal or are you independent? Yes. Mm. You know, how do we, (laughs) because that's sticky. It just can be super, super complicated. And so because our governance model is a bit unique, we sometimes have members that say, hey, the webinars are great and the workshops are fantastic and we've all read your principles of good practice and we all get that. However, we would really benefit from someone coming to us to help us understand how those principles apply in this context and especially with our background. Because so many times we all understand what the principles are, but we're working through past experiences and things that may have been part of the DNA of the organization before, before the current leaders even arrived and just trying to figure out systemically what's going on with all that. So our schools will frequently ask us for what we call, you know, something beyond membership. And so we will do what we can to go down to the school, to spend a little time with them working through the specific issues and really do what we can to help. Amazing. So I have to ask, how is membership? You know, membership, like all associations, is a priority for us. Right. Our retention levels are great. We have, you know, retention in that 88%, 89%, 90%. So we love to see that. But really, we've got two challenges. Challenge one is going to be, what are we doing to maintain that awesome retention and even try to get that into the 90s, really push that number up, as well as what's our strategy for inviting schools back who have been members but are not members now. And part of that can be financial. When we talk to members, rarely do we have a member who has left because they weren't satisfied. We occasionally get that, and not because they're necessarily upset, but because they don't feel like they experienced the return on investment. Hmm. So what are we doing from a retention perspective to make sure that we're retaining all our member schools? And then what are we doing to approach schools who have made a decision not to be part of us? What are we doing to get those schools back? So those are our two kind of strategic initiatives that we're going to work on in the coming years. Wow. You have an amazing staff and we worship them. You know that, right? Oh my gosh, they're the best. The best. I mean, and I'm not just saying that. We say what you all are able to do with a small staff that the large clients, they futz around for a year. And I guess Linda and Jonathan meet. Sometimes you get guidance from us and sometimes you don't. And you just run and Linda makes sure that the quality is good. Or Jonathan would consult with Anne. And oh man, just amazing. It's scary what we accomplish with six people. I know. You know, we've got some wonderful plans on the horizon that we're going to unveil in the next year, and we're going to probably need to get a little bit of help. But it's, I look at what this team has accomplished. It's pretty amazing. I think that's one of the benefits of having school folks because we don't have months. That's true. We've got a nine month program year, and it's. And you miss your window if you don't act fast. Yeah, we don't have months. So we got to. Hopefully we're nimble if we're anything. You're nimble. And I think also you have a lot of trust in the staff and you have good people. 
yeah, part of that also is just I'm a product of dispersed leadership. And it's been a lot of time studying dispersed leadership and holacracy and some different methods for that. And that's how you accomplish as much as you do is you have very clearly defined domains, very clearly defined accountabilities, and then let people do what you've asked them to do. Right, right, And right. so there's not a need for me to approve everything. And they know, you know, to get feedback and they know when to ask. But most of the time what they hear from me is, what's your strategy on this? What's your plan? And go execute. Right. And as long as they know what the guardrails are and what the parameters are, then, then they operate. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what that weekly check-in is so important. We do a weekly check-in. That's one of the guardrails is if anyone feels nervous or like they're getting close to a guardrail, that's where they kind of check and either get reassurance from me that, oh my gosh, keep going. You keep doing exactly what you're doing. Or, okay, wow, maybe we need to course correct a little bit. Right. Huh. And before I leave, I do have to say one more thing, Joanna. We would not be able to do what we do without Matrix. Oh, so thank you for your team, because when it comes down to it, if we don't have the right database and we don't have the right platforms, or we don't have the right way to communicate with our folks, then it all becomes completely more difficult than it needs to be. And so thank you and your team for making our job easy. Well, my team absolutely adores your team. And whenever there's an overview session for the next release of Matrix Max, Somebody goes down the list, and if there isn't somebody from NAS, we'll say something's got to be happening, and or we'll make a phone call, because we know just how committed your staff is to making sure that they're really doing the best for the membership. So I want to thank you for joining me today, for sharing what you're doing to thrive, and for everything you're doing for the schools. I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.